Mark chapter 9. We're in week 17 going through our series in Mark, Walking with Jesus. Let me open us up with some prayer. Holy Spirit, we pray to you now as the third person of the Trinity to enlighten the eyes of our hearts where our vision is dim to your glory, Lord. Give us clarity. And where our hearts have become hardened to your truth, break down those walls. Lord, let us treasure Christ now as we see the glory of his grace shine through the pages of your word to us, we pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday was Melissa and I's, my wife, our seven-year anniversary here in the great state of Ohio. And I was reflecting a little bit as I was thinking about it because God has sort of wired me that way. I tend to be a little bit of a reflective person. And like a lot of people, when I look back on the years, the first place that my mind tends to sort of fall back into is, is on the hardships and on some of the heavinesses that we've experienced. God, I, you know, he led us from Southern California to quite an unfamiliar place for us. And, and everything began to, in some ways, uh, slowly unravel in our lives the minute we landed. I'm the, the first conversation I had when we rolled into town was with a guy who said, and I quote, I'm giving you six months, is what he said to me. And I'm like, six months to do what? Like, are you like, are you a bounty hunter or something? Like what? Like, I mean, I just traveled across the country with two cats, brother. Like I have no plans to go anywhere but, but Ashland, you know, until, until they die, one of them is still alive. Um, but I had no idea that these months and years would be the start of many, uh, what I like to call middle of the night moments when sleep was not my friend and my mind would wander through just a mental inventory of, of all the things that, that, I, that I'd lost. Because some things, because some people, because some opportunities, because some friendships had been lost. There had been things lost. But, but these sad reflections that I was having, these sort of these sober glimpses uh, of the past gave way for God to also do something where he re- helped me recall some of the joys that he had given me, that he had provided for me along the way in the midst of those things, and to help me realize that it's actually not that hard to see the ways that he'd been redeeming those lost and unfamiliar things in our lives all the way through. And of course, like, like most church plants, uh, you know, this one, man, it started in a humble state. It really did. A lot of, a lot of fear had, had welled up in my heart. I, I, want, I just, I, you know, I wondered out loud to a lot of people. Some of you are those people. I wondered out loud to a lot of people if God would actually do this work, if he would actually birth this new church family in a town that has, you know, let's be honest, a lot of churches and a lot of families. Um, because he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He doesn't have to do this. And we know this because most church plants, and, and most of you guys probably don't have statistics on these things, most church plants fail. The, the statistic is that 80% of, of church plants actually don't survive. But then when I step back right now, when I step back this week as I was reflecting, when I take a moment to just think and to recount and to reflect on what God has done here, I, I can see sort of the colors and the shapes of redemption all around. And I know some of you guys can see that as well. Grace and mercy, those two things, man, you guys have seen this. They've been in abundant supply. 
God has brought people from death to life. We've seen that happen. He's made and he's making disciples. He's grown people, myself included, more deeply in the knowledge of Christ. He's drawn us to repentance daily, weekly. He's humbled us. He's convicted us. He's repaired things. He is repairing things. He's repairing our marriages. He's comforting us in our grief. Some of us have had to grieve over death. He's comforted us. He's making us less fearful of our futures. He's redeeming the depth of our desires. He's actually been doing this crazy thing in a church context where he's been warming us up to one another. And he's been comforting us more deeply to himself in the process. And what's miraculous about this is that he doesn't owe us, he doesn't owe us any of this. He didn't need to use any of us for this. He didn't need to save any of us either. There's no entitlement between us and God, right? But he's done both despite us, despite our sin. I mean, there have been hundreds of glorious things, and really they're, they're a sight to behold if we pause long enough to just look and to just listen for even a minute. Because there's really not a minute, there's really not an, an hour, a day, or a week that goes by that we don't get a glimpse of God's glory. If we just pause long enough to look and listen, our hearts will be moved to rejoicing. It's inevitable. Because what we behold, and we just sang about this when we sang Behold Our God, what we behold shapes how we live our lives. We live in light of what we fix our eyes and our minds on. Zach Eswine uh, is a pastor, author. He describes this word beholding as this, stopping everything for a moment in order to fix our complete attention upon something. So I want to open us up this morning with this question. What are you beholding in your life? What do you fix your eyes? What are you fixing your eyes completely on? Because what we're going to see here in this particular text in Mark is that when we behold the glory of Christ, we become prepared. He prepares us to follow him through the kind of humiliation and dark times that we are going to experience because those things, that kind of humiliation is what eventually leads us to our own glorification. There's always an end game. There's always an end glorious future in the life of a believer. And what we're going to see is how Jesus gave Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, a glimpse of his glory to behold. So what I want to do is I want to look at what happened to them I want to see how it prepared them and then how God wants the glimpses of glory he gives us to help clear our vision, to help uncover our ears and to help move our hearts toward a deeper devotion to Jesus. So that's what we're going to set out and attempt to do. A little recap from last week though. What we know is that six days earlier, as we get into this text today, as we get into Mark 9, six days earlier, Jesus had asked his disciples the question, right? It was an important question. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, right? Old Petey replies with the $6 million answer when he says, you are the Christ. But when Jesus tells Peter and his disciples what it 
meant for him to actually be the Christ, Peter rebukes Jesus to his face because Peter's mind, it says, was not set on the things of God, which was that Jesus had to suffer and he had to die. And his path wasn't the path that the disciples thought it was going to be. The disciples were still seeking an earthly-minded future for Jesus. They're getting Jesus all wrong. Their vision was blurry. Their ears were only hearing what they wanted to hear. And here's the thing, right? It was such a significant error that Jesus goes so far as to rebuke Satan for the influence and deception he was attempting to inflict on his disciples. So just right from the top, that's how important it is for us to not tweak the words of Jesus, right? Don't screw around with God's word. Because that, really, this, this tweaking with what God says, it is the origin of sin and deception. Remember in the garden, what's the first question that Adam and Eve get from Satan? He says, did God really say? The very first thing that comes out of his mouth is an attempt to allow God's people to misinterpret and to mess with the actual words that he had actually said. That's it. That's where it all starts. And actually, that's where it all ends for us. It's not complicated. That's where we find ourselves veering. That's where, that's where we find ourselves falling back on those sins that we consistently fall back to. It's because in essence, in a sense, not in a sense, in reality, we're tweaking with God's word. We're not believing God's word. We're not following God's word. So with that in mind, let's, let's dive in. Mark chapter 9. And I'm going to start with verse 1. We hit verse 1, but we didn't really explain it last week, but I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to give you a little overview of it before we move on to 2 through 13. But starting with chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, like I said a minute ago, we didn't cover verse 1 last week, even though it connected to the previous chapter. There's some different opinions about the interpretations here, but many commentators agree that Jesus here is referring 
to his reign. When you look down on verse 1, that some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his come in power. Uh, many commentators agree that Jesus is referring to his resurrection and that some of those standing with him in that moment um, would live to see Christ exalted in power. We know that that's true. Many of them did live to see uh, Christ exalted after uh, the resurrection. Uh, the transfiguration, which is what we're going to be concentrating on this morning, which happens right after he makes this declaration, we're going to see, gives them a glimpse of this, gives them a preview of sorts of this, which is the kingdom of God coming with power to redeem mankind from sin and death. So as we look at this really remarkable moment in the life of Jesus, which is called the transfiguration. This is something that he gave the privilege of three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the opportunity to see a manifestation of the future heavenly glory of God resting on the earth. And so as we continue in verse 2, as we get into this story, we see that Jesus brings Peter, James, and John. He brings them up a mountain, and it says he is transfigured before them. Now, if the word transfigured sounds like a word that you haven't used in a while, um, think of the word uh, metamorphosis instead, which uh, means changed in form, right? And we think of metamorphosis, it kind of, you know, draws up the image of like a caterpillar being changed into a butterfly. And it's kind of the same thing here, which is how, uh, which is how Mark is describing this particular word. Interestingly, it's also the same word that Paul uses And it's the same word Paul uses to describe the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And and he he talks about this in Romans 12 too when he says, when you're being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Same concept. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are now being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to Another. So what's happening right here is that the disciples are getting a preview of the future glorification of Jesus that was going to happen when he completed his work of redemption on the cross. You know, it's kind of like when you go to the movies, right? You get to the movies early, you, you get your popcorn, you get your red vines. Do they do red vines out here or is it Twizzlers? I don't know. I got to do red vine. I'm a red vine guy. I'm just throwing it out there right now. I know that's coming at a great cost. I think, I think Jillian, is a, are you a red viner? All right, there's two of us. So it's kind of like a movie trailer where you sit down, you got your, you know, your 10-pound bucket of popcorn, and then the movie trailers come up, right? You know, and you get like a preview. You get a glimpse of what lies ahead. And then an hour and a half later, the previews are done, your popcorn's over, and you forgot that you actually came there for the movie that then comes on. And that's what happens to me every time. So what we're seeing here is a supernatural, and it's going to tell us in a minute, terrifying glimpse of the heavenly glory of God in the flesh by virtue of Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus' clothing becomes radiant white with this unearthly, this sort of alien brightness that even the most powerful Clorox bleach couldn't produce is what it says. And what's interesting about this is that this actually parallels the glory that Moses from the Old Testament experienced in the book of Exodus when he went up to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments from God. And the story kind of goes like this. Uh, before Moses goes up the mountain, he makes a crazy request of God in Exodus chapter 33. He says this. He says, God, please show me your glory. So Moses was longing to get a glimpse of God's glory. I mean, he even, he even says, please, right? But God answers Moses and says, you cannot see my face, 
for man shall not see me and live. That's, Moses, that's God's reply to Moses. God is like, I hear your request, Mo, but it's problematic because you'll die and I kind of need you alive right now, is what he's saying. It's kind of like when your child wants to put their fingers in the light socket, right? Technically, you wouldn't have any problem with it at all if it wasn't for that whole electrocution thing, right? Like, it, it would be good, but you know it's not going to end well. So instead, God tells Moses, he says this, he says, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses gets a glimpse of God's glory, his otherworldly holiness. And when he comes back down the mountain in Exodus 34, it says, Aaron, his priest, his high priest, and all the people of Israel, they saw Moses. And behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So he was reflecting this glory that God had showed him while he hid him in the rock and his back passed by him. What this does, this helps gives us some insight into what the heck that we mean when we start talking about God's glory. We use that word a lot. We should use that word a lot, but we should know what that word means, what it contains. What the Bible means by glory, when it talks about God's glory, it's talking about God's purity. It's talking about his righteousness. It's talking about his otherness. He's not us, right? It's talking about his greatness above and beyond all things. It's talking about his holiness, his separateness. It's talking about a light that describes God that is unapproachable and goes beyond our comprehension because of our inability as sinful creatures to bear the weight of it. I don't have enough language. I don't have enough language to describe this. It's kind of like staring into the sun. That's the best way that I can think of how to describe it. If we stare too long, we'll go blind. If we stand under it too long, we're going to burn up. Well, why is that? Well, because we're not able to withstand its glory, its brightness, its heat. It consumes us. That's God's glory. If we get too close, it consumes us because we can't bear the weight of it. So as if that sight to behold wasn't enough, getting back to our story, out of nowhere, we see two famous dead guys appear, right? We think, no big, right? The disciples saw stuff like this all the time, except that it says they were terrified when they saw this. And we get into verses 4 or 6, and it says this, and they appeared to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. So what does this mean here? What are we looking at here? What does this appearance by Moses and Elijah actually mean? Well, this is what it means. It means that the old covenant represented by Moses and Elijah, who were represented in this particular moment as being the law and the prophets, the law coming from Moses and Elijah as a prophet, this was now being fulfilled. This was now coming to fruition by Jesus, who would now establish a new covenant as he atoned 
for the sins of the world by his sacrifice on the cross. Does that make sense? This is why Peter describes Jesus in 1 Peter 1.19 like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He came to fulfill the old law, all the old commandments that God gave Moses and establish a new covenant, a new commandment that says all those old sacrifices now, we don't have to do those any longer because we have the one sacrifice that atones for all of our sins if we now place our trust in Christ who then becomes our righteousness. That's what we mean when we say this word gospel all the time. That's good news. That's good news for us. And then if you go to Luke's gospel, if you go to Luke's telling of this story, he tells us that Moses and Elijah, what they did was they spoke with Jesus up on the mountain. They spoke with him, it says, about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So there's kind of a pivot here that happens in the book where now we see Jesus sort of on the road to Calvary. We see him now heading and preparing for Jerusalem and everything that was to follow, which of course was the cross. So again, back to our story, Peter's, this brother's losing his mind right here in verse 5. Peter, Peter's overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do, but he knows he doesn't want it to end, right? Pete, he doesn't want it to end. He just seems to want to prolong the moment, right? And I, and I look at this, and, and I, man, I don't want to miss the humanity here of Peter because it's, it's easy to laugh at Peter, and, and I laugh, sometimes I laugh at Peter because really I'm crying with Peter because I see myself in Peter so clearly, but it's easy to laugh at him. But man, this was a brother that was just scared, wasn't he? I mean, look at what, look at what God is putting before his eyes to behold. And he's just a dude. He's just afraid. He's like us. I see myself in Peter. I see, I see a dude fighting with change is what I see when I look at Peter. Someone who's dreams were crushed the minute Jesus started all this talk about suffering and dying. Do we see that happening with Peter? I mean, seeing Jesus with Moses and Elijah might have given Peter this false hope that man, maybe Jesus didn't have to die after all. Like, hey, Jesus, everything is, everything's awesome right now. Everything is great here. How about we just keep this party rolling for like, you know, ever? Like, why don't we do that? Why don't we capture can we contain this moment? Does the future have to be so terrifying and unclear? And again, this reminds me of me because I'm fearful of change because I want familiarity like you do. But I think, I think God, like he does here with these disciples so graciously, he gives us glimpses of his glory and he does it as a way to give our faith the anchors that it needs when we are faced with faint-heartedness and we're faced with unfamiliar futures. That was these disciples' futures. And God gave them a glimpse as a way to strengthen them and encourage them and remind them. So Peter, naturally, he's stressing out right here. Jesus is clothed in terrifying glory. Moses and Elijah are back from the dead. And for Peter, a guy that's not of right mind, first thing that comes to mind is tense. I don't know. But Peter needed to stop stirring. He needed to stop stirring. So God speaks to unstir Peter in verses 7 through 9 and says, A cloud 
overshadowed them. Again, this reminder of the cloud that came over and spoke to Moses back in the Old Testament. It says a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's all God says. This is my son. Listen. And again, this also mirrors the time that God spoke after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. In the same way God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, again, he reveals himself as the one who now speaks through his son. Stop talking, Peter. Just start listening. Stop. Stop talking. Stop stirring. Start listening. Because when you listen to the words of Jesus, you are listening to me. Listen to him. And then just like that, all goes silent, it says. And what I like about this image, when everything goes silent right there in verse 9, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. What I like about the image is that it reminds us that God has the final word, doesn't he? When he stops speaking, when his voice goes silent, what's left is Jesus, who is God, in the flesh, continuing to speak the words of God. And that's what we have right now. That's what we have today. That's the predicament that we're left with right now. And the first command he gives them is to keep this moment to themselves until after his resurrection. And you know what? You know what's interesting about this? Peter does that. Peter obeys the Lord. Peter did listen to Jesus. He kept his mouth shut in the moment. But he didn't keep it shut forever. In 2 Peter 1, 16-18, he writes this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says this, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter gives testimony to this. No, this is something. This is a glimpse of God's glory that we saw that we are sharing with you now to encourage you, to remind you of everything Christ is, everything Christ does, and the future that you will have with him in glory if your trust is contained in him. And of course, the disciples, they are still, man, they're still messed up. They're still in a quandary when we get to verse 9. After seeing his glory, the thought of Jesus being resurrected, man, it still confuses them. Remember, these brothers are just constantly confused. They believed, they believed in the resurrection. They believed someday that the dead would be resurrected, but they never thought that the Messiah would need to be. That was all new to them. They were still not quite understanding. So what happens is they they ask, they ask Jesus, they ask about this Old Testament prophecy from the book of Malachi that says Elijah would come first to prepare the way for the Messiah. But Jesus goes, hey, look, he points out in verse 12 to 13, he says the prophecy in Malachi, like brothers, it was fulfilled. He says it was fulfilled by John the Baptist, who is a type of Elijah. Jesus is saying this, don't miss what's happening before your very eyes here, boys. That's what he's saying. The suffering that John the Baptist endured 
It was a preview. It paved the way for the suffering that I'm going to endure to fulfill the redemptive plan that I am the culmination of. And it was time for the disciples to get this. It was time for them to behold, to listen, and to finally understand what it was that Jesus was doing. So what, what about us in this? What a story, huh? I told my friend, I said, hey, I'm preaching the transfiguration. And he said, oh my gosh, how can I pray for you? So, so what about us as we look at this? I think I want to go back to the original question I asked, which is, what are we beholding? What are we fixing our eyes on? Because like the disciples, we, we need eyes to behold. We need ears to listen. We need our hearts to be moved. That's what we need. We need eyes to behold. Do you, do you ever pause to see what God is doing? Do you guys ever do that? Do you ever just stop? Do you ever just stop stirring for a minute? Do you ever pause to see what he's doing? Do you see the work of Christ in your life? Do you pause long enough to go, oh, there it is. I got another glimpse of it right over there. Oh, I'm getting a glimpse of it right now. Do you ever pause to see the work of Christ in this church? The way he's gathered us together. The ways we've grown. The ways we're growing in the gospel. How we've seen people come from death to life. None of this existed four years ago. It was like God constructed a new lighthouse so that he could have yet another place for his glory to shine out of. It's a little rough for a lighthouse, let's be honest, right? But it shows us that God likes vintage things too, right? It shows us he likes reclaimed barn wood when he builds new lighthouses. But do you have eyes to behold that? And not only eyes to behold, but do you have ears to listen like, like Peter needed to? Because, you know, it, it's not enough to simply see it's not enough to simply see. Peter saw a lot. And that brother saw a lot of things. The disciples have seen the power of Jesus heal so many lives. And yet God spoke audibly to Peter to tell him to listen. God is like, stop, Peter. Stop stirring and start listening. He so easily lost focus. Sounds familiar. To me, God is saying, listen, Peter, everything you need to live in the light and reality of my glory is contained in my son, who is the image of me, the invisible God. Listen to him, he says. He's telling you he must suffer, die, and rise again. Listen to him. He's telling you to take up your own cross. Listen to him. He's telling you to deny yourself. Listen to him. This is the path to the glory you are glimpsing right now. So we need to have eyes to behold. But we also need to have ears to listen so that we can have hearts that are actually moved. It's interesting that Peter wasn't supposed to make tents for Jesus and the prophets and take an extending camping trip on top of the mountain. That wasn't part of the plan. It was to get off the mountain. It was to follow Jesus to the cross and then follow him by giving their own lives away 
like we read at the end of Matthew 28 when he commissions them. And he says, get out of here. Go out into all the world. The transfiguration was meant to, to further transform their hearts for what lied ahead. And here's what's interesting for us. Every glimpse of glory, and there's many if we pause, but every glimpse of glory in our lives, every moment that transpires that we have no precedence for is meant to lead to a greater vision of Jesus and also a greater belief that the glory of his redemption literally grounds and transforms every nuance of our existence. There's nothing that falls outside of that. There's nothing that it's not going to be good for. In some ways, it would be great and easy and familiar to somehow suspend ourselves here, right? To bask in the glow of our safe and our familiar church family, which, by the way, I really love. It doesn't feel safe all the time, but familiar, yes, because I've gotten to know so many of you. But when that's our desired outcome, church becomes dangerous because our hearts have detached from mission. Let us not be a church that makes church its mission, like Peter tried to do. Church should always be a launch pad for us into the land of the lost, is what it should be. The glory is right in front of our eyes. It's right there. Every time you open God's word, every time you pray, every time you recount God's wonderful deeds, every time you praise him in song, every time you encourage your brother or sister in Christ, every time you teach your kids the truth of his word, every time you share the gospel and you take that risk, every time you thank the Lord for all of his generous provisions, it's all right there. The glory is there to glimpse. The disciples were given it. They were given a glimpse of glory on the mountain. But man, they were, they were going to get a lot more of it, weren't they? When Christ was resurrected and appeared to them. And we too get more than a glimpse. We too have this testimony now of the resurrected Christ. That's our story. And through it all, God will give us further glimpses of his glory to encourage us and to call us back to what matters most, which are lives devoted to Christ, who gave us everything so that we'd have nothing but him. That's where his glory led him to. It was the path, it was the road to humiliation that would end in exaltation so that we might know glorification with him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you for the glimpses of glory that we see all the time if we just pause and stop to look and to listen and to thank you for all the ways that you have worked and continue to work in our lives and in the lives of our church family. Lord, stir in us what you stirred in your disciples. Lord, call us to this slowing down and to this listening that we see, that we saw that you did for Peter. Lord, we are Peter. 
we so easily lose focus. We so easily want things to just remain static in our lives. But Lord, you are moving us to something. You are changeless, and yet you are calling us to change. And yet it's by your grace that you do it in a way that we are drawn closer in the security and comfort that we find in you. And it's because of this glory that led you to the cross. It's because of your obedience to God the Father that we too can someday see you face to face in glory and know you as we have been known by you. Lord, let that truth change us. Let it slow us down. Let it help us to pause even today if we can just take a minute and remember who you are and what you do and what you continue to do so that our lives would be reflective of that glory which causes us to bow at the knee before the throne of grace and to adore you in thankfulness. Lord, thank you that you gave us everything that we need in Christ. It is darkness without Christ. We are in darkness without him. Thank you that you gave us the light of lights in Jesus. We thank you for this. And we pray in Christ's name together we said, amen.